Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 462, recorded on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. 150 years ago last week, on March 3rd, 1873, the Comstock laws on obscenity, including birth control and abortion supplies or information, as well as, of course, pornography, became part of the U.S. Criminal Code. Some of this wasn't struck down until 1972, a full 99 years later, and to some degree it is still influencing public policy debates today. And before we get into talking about the Comstock laws of 150 years ago, we're going to turn to Rachel to talk about some of those present-day March 2023 news stories that illustrate why it's important to be talking about the Comstock laws 150 years later. Yes. So uh, the first uh, present day news story I want to highlight is uh, the federal case about FDA approved abortion pills. Um, so the the effects of the Comstock laws are still reverberating today, as Bill just said, even though the federal laws themselves have gone unenforced for the last 50 years or so. And we can hear the echoes in the call for bans on mailing medication abortion drugs, uh, mifepristone and misoprostol. Uh, so these drugs are used to safely and effectively induce abortions and can be used in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. And doctors have even prescribed them in 12 and 13 week abortions. And medication abortions account for more than half of all abortions in the U.S. So prior to 2021, Mifepristone could only be distributed by select pharmacies and phys- physicians' offices and had to be dispensed in person. Uh, misoprostol has other non-abortifacient uses and was less restricted. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, the FDA decided to temporarily lift the in-person uh, disbursement requirement. And so uh, you could then pick up abortion pills um, from retail pharmacies and other, or through um, mail-in pharmacies, um, so you could get your abortion pills through the mail safely, effectively. There were no um, no risks uh, to providing abortion pills through the mail. Um, fast forward to today, with the right to a safe and legal abortion under attack at the state level and no longer protected at the federal level after the Dobbs decision. The FDA announced in January that they are making the the temporary rule change permanent, as well as expanding availability of abortion pills to retail pharmacies, provided they complete a certification process, which includes registering with the FDA and extra training for pharmacists. 
And um, I'm quoting from a BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, um, quote, medication abortion pills will also be available by U.S. mail, even in states where abortion is highly restricted or illegal. The Department of Justice ruled in December that mailing the drugs was not prohibited by the Comstock Act, Comstock Act of 1873, which banned mailing of, quote unquote, obscene material. Uh, the Justice Department ruling said that mailing the drugs, quote, lacks the intent that the recipient will use them unlawfully, end quote. Uh, the abortion drugs could be ordered from online pharmacies and mailed to recipients in any state. So what this means is that women can visit with a physician via a telehealth appointment, where legal, get the abortion pill prescribed and mailed to them without jumping through a lot of bureaucratic hoops or even having to leave their house. Um, so that's pretty significant, pretty major um, in abortion access. Um, however, um, Walgreens just announced that they are not going to sell abortion pills in 20 states. So despite the broadening and the availability of abortion pills in retail pharmacies and by mail, there are still battles ongoing over access to these drugs. Uh, Walgreens, one of the largest retail pharmacy chains in the country, has already said that they won't sell abortion pills in states where Republican attorneys general have threatened legal action, even if those states aren't currently restricting legal access to abortions. Um, this is in addition to states that have already curtailed abortion access. Uh, so Walgreens hasn't started distributing abortion pills at any of their locations because they're still in that FDA certification process. Um, so this news comes after 20 attorneys general sent a letter to Walgreens and other pharmacies threatening legal action if they dispensed mifepristone. Um, other pharmacy chains that have also received the letter have not yet disclosed whether or not they will choose to dispense mifepristone in states where the legality to do so is under legal threat. Um, quoting from an NPR article, quote, mifepristone, which is also used to ease miscarriages, is still allowed in some of the states where Walgreens won't sell it, including Alaska, Iowa, Kansas, and Montana. The situation underscores how challenging it can be to obtain an abortion, even in states where it remains legal, end quote. And even worse, in addition to private companies voluntarily curtailing the sale and distribution of mifepristone, a Texas court is currently trying to a case that challenges the FDA approval status of the drug uh, overall. And if the judge determines that mifepristone shouldn't be FDA approved, the state of medication abortion would be at risk nationwide. Um, although other drugs can be used to induce an abortion, the mifepristone-mesoprostol combination is the gold standard protocol. Um, quoting from another NPR article, uh, Normally, as the FDA has noted in its defense of its approval process, it would be unusual to pull a drug from the market after more than two decades of widespread safe and effective use. If Judge Kaczmarek sides with the anti-abortion group, mifepristone would have to be pulled from the market, at least temporarily. The FDA could choose to restart the approval process, which could take years. And uh, just a note, Judge Kaczmarek is a Trump-appointed judge who was engaged in right-wing judicial activism in the past, including working as an attorney for a conservative Christian legal group based in Texas. Uh, quoting again from the article, Quote, it's no accident that the complaint was filed in Amarillo, says Elizabeth Sepper, a University of Texas at Austin law professor. Uh, the way the district courts in Texas dole out cases makes it so that there are a few places where you pretty much know which judge you're going to get, Sepper says. So they know they have a very sympathetic ear, end quote. Um, 
and any appeals in the case would go to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is widely known as a conservative jurisdiction, and then could go on to the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, the the access to safe and legal medication abortions is at great risk right now, and it's in the hands of basically one Texas judge. So it's it's very um, very precarious right now, and it it isn't helped by the fact that. Um, Walgreens is kind of voluntarily uh, restricting themselves. They don't even need any current legal action, any laws on the book saying that they can't. They're already going out and saying they're not going to distribute these abortion pills, even in places where it's legal. So that's kind of the the specter of the, the Comstock laws is still kind of looming over us, still kind of threatening, giving that legal threat, and still kind of spurring private companies to voluntarily um, choose to censor themselves, basically, um, even if there isn't any legal reason that they have to do so. So it's 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 very long reaching, very um, scary um, uh, landscape right now. So let's turn back the clock and do some historical overview and reflection here on the origins of this uh, debate and this policy question. Now, as we think about this, because we're going to be talking about the second industrial revolution period, let's think about some of the transitional changes that are happening in the United States and other uh, industrializing countries around the world at the time. Let's bear that in mind as we think about this discussion. So, you know, in centuries past or time immemorial, you had largely rural populations. And in those cases, if somebody needed to uh, get an abortion, uh, induce an abortion, they probably knew one particular, you know, lady in the village or the next village over who could discreetly hook you up with some natural thing that would help you out of that jam. Things are obviously going to take a different turn and become a different social dynamic when you have people leaving that rural setting, going to the cities in ever-increasing numbers, becoming more isolated from this type of a community relationship, and having to kind of figure out how to get access to these things that they needed uh, some other way on their own. And so you start looking at pharmaceutical solutions but then you have to, of course, deal with some pharmacist, uh, apothecary type person, which maybe that's helpful. Maybe it's not. It might depend on the person. Uh, or you can potentially get things through the mail, which is the beginnings of the debate that Rachel just explained was still ongoing even now. So modern obscenity law, which actually is the thing that uh, was the genesis for the Comstock laws and uh, covers a lot of these topics, even though you might not think of them uh, as obscenity. Modern obscenity law in the Anglo-American world dates to about the end of the First Industrial Revolution and the early Second Industrial Revolution. Victorian Britain unsurprisingly led that charge when it passed the Obscene Publications Act in 1857, raising obscenity offenses to a more serious level of criminality and perhaps more importantly, empowering the government to seize and destroy obscene materials. The United States was more distracted by a much more serious issue, the sectional crisis and looming civil war, and so it did not immediately jump on that bandwagon. 
until after the actual crisis had passed. Then, in 1868, over a decade later, the British courts had a high-profile court ruling in Regina, i.e. the Crown v. Hicklin, where they came to a clearer definition of what actually constituted obscenity in a case where, ironically, the obscene content at issue was an anti-Catholic pamphlet that was sincerely attempting to horrify readers about the salacious misdeeds of Catholic priests. The Hicklin test was an extremely broad interpretation and crucially ruled that any materials with any obscene content could be suppressed in their entirety without taking into account mitigating context for the obscene portions of the content. This case is important to mention for our purposes, even though it occurred outside of the United States and the U.S. legal system, because the U.S. judges faced the same questions about the actual definition and parameters of obscenity if they were going to enforce a rule upon state and later federal obscenity laws. Their interim solution for the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century was to adopt the Hicklin court ruling from Britain and to import that very broad obscenity definition and suppression methodology into U.S. law without any particular input from legislators or even the U.S. Supreme Court. That means that the 1870s federal laws on obscenity that we're about to discuss, which would remain in effect in full or in part for an entire century, were extraordinarily broad in both their intent and enforcement. Anything with even a shred of arguably obscene content within it could face the hammer of federal enforcement, and, as we're about to discuss, among many things, that included advertisements or educational materials on birth control and abortion for any reason and to any audience. In 1872, there was an initial somewhat limited federal law passed on the issue of obscenity, but it was amended within a year by the March 3, 1873 Comstock laws that vastly widened the scope. By this point, for setting our frame of mind, the second industrial revolution and all its mass consumer production and advertising was taking off at full speed in rapidly growing U.S. cities and fully marketized U.S. rural communities. President Grant was beginning to wind down Reconstruction in the post-Civil War American South, and he was set to deliver his second inaugural address the next day. And the United States was coming into its own as a true interstate economy and political system, instead of a fragmented patchwork of state-level enterprises and sectional communities. Moral crusaders among Protestant Republicans and Democratic Catholics were taking up a range of purported vice problems and demanding laws to prohibit and criminalize those vices. While states and cities were already taking this up here and there, one man had made it his personal mission to federalize the situation and make the United States postal system the morality police. Anthony Comstock of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, also heavily backed by the YMCA. Through his tireless lobbying, Congress enacted the obscenity and morality laws that would come to be known by Comstock's name. And he was further successful in being named as the U.S. Postal Inspector tasked with enforcing the new laws. Perhaps the wildest fact about this guy, which rarely gets mentioned, is that he was just 29 years old when he shepherded through this sweeping new federal law and became a postal inspector. He remained in that post until January 1907, into his 60s, through nine different presidential administrations from both major parties. Apparently, his obsession with morality policing had begun as a hyper-Christian 19-year-old Connecticut infantryman during the Civil War, when he was surrounded by ill-behaved soldiers. He would spend decades arresting people, destroying lives, driving people to suicide, 
and above all, endlessly censoring anything and everything that he could find jurisdiction over in the federal government or in New York City. So what did the March 3, 1873 Federal Criminal Code Amendments state? Quote, Every obscene, lewd, or lascivious, and every filthy book, pamphlet, picture, paper, letter, writing, print, or other publication of an indecent character, and every article or thing designed, adapted, or intended for preventing conception or producing abortion, or for any indecent or immoral use, and every article, instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing which is advertised or described in a manner calculated to lead another to use or apply it for preventing conception or producing abortion, or for any indecent or immoral purpose, and every written or printed card, letter, circular, book, pamphlet, advertisement, or notice of any kind, giving information directly or indirectly, where or how or of whom or by what means any of the herein-before mentioned matters, articles, or things may be obtained or made, or where or by whom any act or operation of any kind for the procuring or producing of abortion will be done or performed, or how or by what means conception may be prevented or abortion may be produced, whether sealed or unsealed, and every letter, packet, or package, or other mail matter containing any filthy, vile, or indecent thing, device, or substance, and every paper, writing, advertisement, or representation that any article, instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing may or can be used or applied for preventing conception or producing abortion or for any indecent or immoral purpose, and every description calculated to induce or incite a person to so use or apply any such article, instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing is hereby declared to be a non-mailable matter and shall not be conveyed in the mails or delivered from any post office or by any letter carrier. Whoever shall knowingly deposit or cause to be deposited for mailing or delivery anything declared by this section to be non-mailable, or shall knowingly take or cause the same to be taken from the mails for the purpose of circulating or disposing thereof, or of aiding in the circulation or disposition thereof, shall be fined not more than $5,000 or imprisoned not more than five years or both, end quote. The federal law also added even harsher restrictions and punishments for obscene materials or objects within the District of Columbia, which had no state government to enact laws on the question. Possession with intent to distribute, i.e. not for personal private use, could lead to hard labor sentences for up to five years. So obviously, as you can tell, this was a very, very sweeping and all-encompassing uh, set of laws, really, really strictly regulating uh, even discussing anything or how to get more information on these things. Uh, and... Some of this was just uh, sort of morality behavioral things, but a lot of it was clearly related to contraceptives and abortion, uh, and they really had a pretty severe effect on that. And obviously, just by regulating the mail alone, you really restrict things from crossing state lines, you restrict publication of newspapers and books because some of those might involve use of the mail, things like that. So you can see that DC aside, the core of the law is about the mail. The U.S. postal system was the legal mechanism for making this a federal criminal matter in an era where the courts still tended to view matters within state lines as being purely state matters. But also, the U.S. postal system had exploded in popularity and usage in the decade preceding the Comstock laws. 
Back in August 2020, in episode 319, we looked at the history of U.S. mail, and we'll repeat one section of that here because it matters a great deal to this topic's context. According to the USPS's official 2020 self-history, doorstep delivery in cities with high, profitable volumes of local mail began in 1863, after it had been demonstrated in Britain that free doorstep delivery actually encouraged higher usage of the postal system and thus generated more revenues than it cost to provide delivery beyond the post office, where people previously had to pick up their mail. Plus, Union soldiers were sending mail to be paid upon delivery by the recipient. Mailboxes at home did not arise until 1912, so mail carriers had to circle back until someone was home before they could deliver. Doorstep delivery after 1863 also included multiple deliveries per day to business districts because mail was time-sensitive for businesses. So, that history of the U.S. mail system tells you a lot about why this was suddenly becoming a significant policy issue to the people who really cared about it and and wanted to stop it, and uh, why they focused on the mail as the enforcement mechanism as well. Basically try to make this as complicated and difficult uh, and dangerous and illegal as possible uh, to get any of this stuff, whether it's information or actual supplies of things, through the mail. One other interesting thing, of course, that the text of this law tells us is what was being circulated or distributed at the time of its enactment which is a good reminder of how much our recent debates on morality, abortion, and birth control were already in full swing 150 years ago. And even though it was passed by Congress and signed into law, that fact does not mean that everyone in the United States agreed with the Comstock laws or enforcement actions at the time. It's probably hard to tell, of course, what the you know, level of opinion was on either side. This is before you had uh, opinion polling. But, backed by much of the U.S. free press, tens of thousands of people signed petitions in the 1870s in favor of repealing these laws to no avail. Comstock, in fact, himself simply dismissed the petitions as fake. When Congress didn't move on the issue in response to this public pressure, organized opposition did fade, perhaps through a combination of demoralization and fear, until the 1910s, a generation or so later. It is probably not a complete coincidence that this also happened around the time that the post office department began transitioning Americans from hand deliveries to mailbox deliveries, and it also coincides with the U.S. becoming a majority urban population for the first time. So Rachel, could you tell us a little bit more about the consequences of the enforcement of this set of laws in 1873 and beyond, and some examples uh, over the ensuing decades? Yeah, so... Um, there are a few famous cases, which I'll go into in a minute, but I wanted to find out the overall impact of the law. And so I found an opinion piece on the Hill talking about the Comstock law at 150 years old. And uh, quoting from that article, during the Comstock law's reign, millions of books, newspapers, magazines, prints, photographs, and circulars were burned under court order. More than 3,000 persons arrested for violations of the Comstock Act served a total of 600 years in prison, most for writing about topics that today are widely accepted in society, including atheism, homosexuality, and sexual health. Medical professionals writing about abortion or contraception were prosecuted, as well as quote-unquote free thinkers who believed in the separation of church and state. Gilded Age freethinker and editor D.M. Bennett was imprisoned for crimes, including advocating for equality of the sexes, end quote. So this had a, a pretty large impact on quite a few people, but there are some um, 
very famous law uh, cases uh, of people violating the Comstock Act that, that definitely stand out. Um, so in 1915, uh, William Sanger and Margaret Sanger, uh, husband and wife, were arrested on separate occasions for disseminating information about contraception through the mail. Um, Margaret Sanger wrote a newspaper called The Woman Rebel, which was distributed by mail. And they also uh, distribu distributed information about contraception in their New York clinic. And uh, as you mentioned in the history, um, Comstock was uh, an anti-vice crusader in New York State, New York City. So he got a state-level law passed. And so uh, distributing that information even in within state limits was enough to get you arrested. Um, so she was convicted, um, Margaret Sanger, but her conviction was later overturned on the grounds that contraceptive devices could legally be promoted for the cure and prevention of disease. However, she did end up spending 30 days in a women's penitentiary in Queens. Um, a couple decades later, in 1932, uh, Sanger again ran afoul of Comstock. Uh, she had a shipment of diaphragms sent from Japan to a sympathetic New York City doctor. Um, when U.S. Customs seized the shipment, Sanger filed a lawsuit challenging the seizure. And in 1936, a federal appeals court ruled in United States v. one package of Japanese pessaries that the federal government could not interfere with doctors providing contraception to their patients. And I really appreciate that uh, the, the party in this case was the actual package of diaphragms. And this um, is true throughout like tons and tons of Comstock prosecutions. Yes, exactly. I'll highlight another case that happened as well. So um, yeah, the, the um, I, I want to highlight here that um, even though uh, efforts to repeal the laws legislatively um, were unsuccessful, as you mentioned. Um, the The sweeping nature of the law did get narrowed over time through uh, judicial review. Um, so, as in the case with with United States v. the diaphragms, um, the federal government did put a limit limit on the law that. Doctors were allowed to provide contraception to their patients, and the federal government couldn't interfere with those efforts. Um, another famous case of someone who ran afoul of the Comstock law was Emma Goldman. Um, she was also arrested for disseminating information about contraception. Um, on February 11, 1916, Goldman was in the middle of a lecture on family planning in New York when she was arrested. And after her arrest, Goldman told reporters, quote, when a law has outgrown t time and necessity, it must go, and the only way to get rid of the law is to awaken the public to the fact that it has outlived its purpose, and that is precisely what I've been doing and mean to do in the future, end quote. And uh, Goldman uh, ended up spending two weeks in a prison workhouse. Um, we've talked about the next two cases uh, pretty uh, closely in, on recent episodes, so I'll just highlight them very quickly. Uh, Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965 struck out struck down the last remaining state Comstock law um, regarding contraception in Connecticut and Massachusetts, but only for married couples. And Eisenstadt v. Baird in 1972 extended the right to contraception to unmarried people. So uh, chipping away on the contraception side, uh, there was also uh, cases chipping away at the obscenity uh, side of the law and really narrowing the definition of what constitutes um, obscene materials. 
So one of the first big cases was Roth v. United States. Um, this was a 1957 case against Samuel Roth, who ran a bookstore in New York, and he was charged with violating the Comstock law by advertising and distributing a magazine called American Aphrodite, which contained literary erotica and nude photography. Although his conviction was upheld, Roth v. United States was a landmark case in that it established a legal test for defining what constituted obscene materials. Whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the material appeals to a prurient interest in sex and whether the material was utterly without redeeming social value. Um, another case happening just one year later was One Inc. versus Oleson, uh, which was a 1958 decision which held that homosexual materials weren't per se obscene. Um, the October 1954 issue of One Magazine, which was a pro-gay publication, was declared, quote-unquote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy by Los Angeles post postmaster Otto Oleson. And One Inc. v. Oleson was the first SCOTUS decision pertaining to homosexuality and the first to address uh, free speech rights with respect to homosexuality, which was very huge, 1950s, right in the middle of all the worst uh, restrictions on gay life. So it's very interesting that it came out in the 1950s, well before the modern uh, LGBT civil rights era. Um, next uh, big case was a 1965 case. Um, Massachusetts law allowed the attorney general to initiate legal proceedings against an obscene book, uh, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, also known as Fanny Hill, which was written by John Cleland in about 1750. Um, so Massachusetts courts deemed the book to be obscene, and that ruling was appealed to the Supreme Court, who heard arguments in December of 1965. And the court held that Massachusetts was not right in finding memoirs obscene, um, and applying the Roth test, the book was not totally without social value. Um, the court reaffirmed that books could not be deemed obscene unless they were unqualifiedly worthless, even if books possessed prurient appeal and were, quote-unquote, patently offensive. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, they were making legal cases against actual items, so much similar to the case with the uh, shipment of pessaries, uh, this was a uh, case against a book itself. So it was Massachusetts, Massachusetts v. Memoirs. So interesting uh, case um, that further applies the Roth test, further uh, restricts the definition of obscene. And the final blow um, on the obscenity side of the Comstock Law was a 1973 case, uh, Miller v. California, so Marvin Miller was convicted of distributing obscene material after conducting a mass mailing advertising campaign for the sale of adult materials. So as it mentioned in the law, you couldn't even advertise uh, for these materials. Um, any advertisement was just as bad as, as mailing the obscene material themselves. Um, in their ruling, the court amended the Roth test and further um, tightened that definition. And quoting from the ruling, uh, the basic guidelines for the trier of fact must be A, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest, B, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct spe specifically defined by the applicable state law, and C, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, end quote. 
So to be counted as an obscene material, it really had to have no redeeming quality whatsoever and just be so offensive that um, any right-thinking person would find it obscene. So that just made it a, a very, very narrow definition. And after this, uh, this basically took all the teeth out of um, the Comstock Act and has left it pretty much dormant um, until today when um, we're seeing a lot of laws on the state level um, that are, again, redefining what obscenity is and uh, applying it to um, uh, books that talk about sex or talk about homosexuality. So we're kind of going back to the 1950s and back to the days when those materials were seen as per se obscene. Um, we see that a lot happening in libraries, uh, schools. So it's the echoes of the Comstock law are really coming back on us and um, coming back with a vengeance in a big way. So uh, we always have to be on the work lookout for these um, these types of bans of, of and curtailments to free speech. And for whatever reason, obscenity appears to be the magic bullet that gets around free speech concerns in the fairly straightforward First Amendment. Um, this seems to be a, a relatively consistent position is that as long as something can be defined as obscene, then it's okay to ban it. And the only question is what falls under the definition of obscenity. Obviously, the Comstock laws had a very broad definition of what was incorporated in into that obscenity concept. And like you said, we're seeing some of these come back now and saying this this thing that was allowed for however many decades is no longer going to be allowed because it's obscene. And again, somehow this concept, which I don't understand how this could be anything other than subjective on a person-to-person -person basis, or even a community-to-community -community basis, is this idea that uh, something has no redeeming value uh, and is purely X, Y, and Z, and therefore not okay. Again, I don't see how you couldn't define that in a subjective way, uh, but that seems to be at the crux of it, is that obscenity gets you out of First Amendment concerns as long as there's a definition of obscenity, and that's the part that's uh, fickle and flexible. Now... Before we close, Rachel, I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of the context for the Comstock laws, which I tried to address or speculate at this this transitional period and, and some of the broader obscenity laws before that in the U.S. and also Britain. This seems to reflect a pretty significant transition that's happening in society at the time. It doesn't seem like it comes out of nowhere. It seems very specifically linked to that social and economic transformation that's happening. Yeah, we're like you said, it's kind of the urbanization of of communities, and I think it's also in the midst of of uh, like women's communities coming together and and creating societies that are anti vice societies. So I think there's a lot of that moralizing happening as a response to kind of the industrialization the urbanization of the populace. Um, also, I, a big part in the U.S., uh, also the, the waves of immigration that are coming in and kind of um, the 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 anti-vice leagues are um, viewing like immigrant uh, communities as, as prurient, as, as degenerate, as uh, amor immoral. 
So I think all of those really tie together um, in the rise of these these anti-vice kind of weirdos. Like Anthony Comstock was an anti-vice weirdo for sure. Like he was off the deep end pretty much. So um, yeah, is is I think it was that fear of of people mixing and not um, assimilating into a nice middle class uh, as it was as it was forming um, morality and trying to enforce that middle-class morality onto everybody, whether they ask for it or not. All right. Well, thanks, Rachel, for coming on to talk about the March 1873 Comstock laws from 150 years ago and the uh, echoing legacies that it's still having uh, even here in 2023. Yeah, glad to be here.